Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Curtis Lockhart. Curtis is a PhD candidate at Oxford and head of research at the Charter Cities Institute. His research interests focus on the political economy of development. Specifically, he's interested in how institutional reforms affect public goods provision in developing countries with an area focus on sub-Saharan Africa. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Curtis, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Why don't we start with getting a little bit of uh, detail about your background and your interests and what brought you to working on these problems? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm I'm in my PhD now, but it goes back to my earlier stint in, in grad school. Uh, I was interested in political decentralization. It came up a bunch in... Uh, my coursework and the readings that I found very interesting and in my conversations with, um, you know, smart people who I, who I trusted. And so it was just in the ether and I ended up doing my um, master's thesis on it and diving deep, deeper into the literature. Um, and I found it very uh, convincing. Uh, specifically, I was looking at this new constitution that was passed in Kenya in, in 2010, and then it was enacted in 2013. Uh, they created a whole new subnational layer of government in Kenya. So it was really centralized before this new constitution in the hands of the presidency. And then once it was enacted in 2013, these 47 county governments were created subnationally. So they're like U.S. states. I'm from Canada. So Canadian provinces, you know, Swiss Swiss cantons and uh, and these guys. And so I wanted to see how that impacted various um, public goods provision. And I, that thesis focused on roads, and now I've been investigating um, other things that were decentralized as well. So uh, water and sanitation being one of them, and then uh, um, uh, some health services as well. So that's what I looked into. And then um, I, I went to Oxford to, to continue that. And uh, I also you know, f- frequently read some blogs and whatnot on the blogosphere, and one of them is um, Tyler Cowen's uh, marginal marginal revolution, um, and this this guy kept being posted. Uh, by, back then, it was called um, uh, horrible name, the Center for Innovative Governance Research. I think it's what it was. <laughs> I think so. The acronym is Cigar. So Cigar, like we yeah. needed we needed to change it. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, now we're CCI, which is which is better. Um, so that kept coming up on the blog, and I was like, oh, this is interesting, and I I clicked in. And um, read a bit about Mark's work, uh, some of his stuff, uh, listened to his podcast, for example, on, on the 80,000 Hours podcast was great. Uh, and basically what, what charter seas were to me in my kind of mental state at the time was just the logical end of, of political decentralization, right? I was studying this regime in, in Kenya that was super centralized, uh, political authority was super centralized in, in kind of this one person, or at least the office of the presidency, and a charter city was saying, like, at the other end of the spectrum is this other thing where political power can be very much devolved to the city level, the local level, uh, and that can result in a lot better outcomes. And that had kind of been justified by my um, by the research and readings that I had been doing at the time. So, so that is a long-winded answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a secret goal of creating your own charter city? Is that what you're looking for? Um, well, it's not so secret. I wouldn't call it secret. That, that, <laughs> that lends a sinister undertone to, to the thing. Um, it's pretty out in the open. So we have a few uh, projects uh, on, on the go. Um, so my research team... We kind of, I see it as we have two, two arms pretty much. One is is research, it's writing, you know, either shorter things like blog posts, or articles, or longer papers, just setting the 
sort of intellectual foundations for this this kind of idea. It's a bit wacky. It's a bit different from what a lot of folks in international development are used to hearing about poverty alleviation, right? And so you need to set a sort of mental model or framework for, for them to put this, this new idea on. So that's number one. And then number two is, uh, is like technical assistance or consulting. So we do have um, several on the ground projects. One is in uh, Zambia, uh, it's in Kwashi. It's a city aimed to be for 100,000 residents centered around uh, a university. So the university is, is focused on STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, um, with the thought being that in Zambia, I mean, especially, I don't know if you guys know about the stuff going on in Zambia, but they're being kind of rocked. Their currency is severely devalued and they have a, an election coming up in August that uh, la lends some more interesting chaos to the current situation. And um Basically, what Moya, who's our partner at on the Nkwashi project, sees this this um, uh, charter city as in Zambia is a way for students to come to this university, gain some STEM skills, and then get a position, uh, you know, working remotely for a tech company, say from Europe or from the states, and getting paid in euros or dollars in order to hedge against this um, currency currency with with, with the Kwacha. Um, which is the Zambian currency. So that's the Zambia project. We have two projects uh, in Nigeria. I won't go into every project. Uh, we have uh, one kind of affiliated project in Honduras and then a few more in, in the pipeline. Um, so yeah, those are those are the two arms of, of research. So no secret projects. We, uh, we try and be forthright about the, the stuff we're involved in. Very nice. Are you gonna are you gonna rule your charter city with an iron fist? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I hope to think that I'm above that. I hope to think that I'm, I'm better than that. Everyone does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to some of the research you did for your, your master's thesis and then your, your later PhD. So mm -hmm. you said that you were focusing on decentralization and the impact of the provisioning of public goods. So could we just start with some definitions? So for the audience, could you define decentralization and then, and I want to come back to that and then public goods as well. Yeah, so I mean, this is good. So there's different types of of decentralization. Um, one, so it's from like I'll go from from weakest to strongest. One is delegation, which is just kind of you have the folks at the center in the central government kind of just delegating authority to another central bureaucrat, but they're just like located in the local area, right? So they just delegate um, things. Uh, another is deconcentration. So you you have the central government. They literally set up a a branch of uh, a central bureaucracy in a local area, and that branch is there, but it's still reporting upwards to the national government, right? Uh, so you have delegation, deconcentration, and then um, the biggest or, or strongest version of decentralization is called devolution, and that's where you actually like Kenya did create this whole new subnational layer of government that is kind of democratically elected. And therefore the officials that are put in place that are elected by that local area are accountable downwards. They're not answering up to the guys at the center anymore. Uh, they are accountable downwards to, to the folks locally. So, and so, so then are, are those people that live there, are they citizens of the charter city then? They're not citizens of the country. Oh, well, he's, he's just talking about decentralization as a concept, not specifically yeah. charter cities just yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, I want to separate the the two concepts. So so charter okay. cities is a form of decentralization right. in right. that they'll they'll require the host country to devolve a lot of authority down to the city level. In fact, we advocate for as, as much authority as the host country is willing to give, uh, minus you know criminal law constitutional law and international treaties, we would like as, as much authority in other realms of law and regulation as, as possible devolved down. Whereas decentralization is just this, um, it's kind of this, this trend that's been occurring um, increasingly since the about 1980s, especially early 1990s, after that wave of democratization hit the world when the USSR fell. Um, Sam Huntington called it the third wave of democratization in the 90s. And when they democratized, a lot of countries also decentralized, right? 
And so um, they are two they are two separate distinct things. And decentralization can either be implemented weakly with with delegation and deconcentration, or strongly uh, like Kenya did for most things. It gets complicated, but right. for most things, uh, with devolution. Yeah. How, how do you assess the the amount of decentralization that's occurred? Is is there an agreed upon metric for measuring that and tracking it over time? No, <laughs> the short answer is no. And this is, I mean, this is why I'm not done my PhD yet. Right. Um, because this stuff is very tricky to, to, first of all, you have to kind of come up with a category categorization or typology, right? To like make some definitions like we just did. Um, and then you have to actually find the data, right? And so where I, concentrate my research in is sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of the data, especially at the local level, is very, very poor. Right. And so you have to do a lot of, 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 of searching. Um, so short answer to your question is, is n- no, there's not um, a sort of standardized way to track the degree of devolution uh, over time. And all of your definitions seemed to still have rather a large role for the government so that there might be in the case of devolution, where there's a new sublayer set up that's democratically elected and beholden to the citizens, uh, that it has to answer directly to them. But when I just sort of naively think of decentralization, I think of decisions that are not being made on a political level. So it seems like what you need is sort of a genie coefficient for power, where you, where you look at the extent to which a single individual is able to make decisions that affect lots of other people. And there might be some interesting tension between decentralization economically, where you've got lots of different firms in an industry making decisions and then decentralization politically where, mm-hmm. where it power is made in where uh, decisions are made in units that are smaller and closer to the actual people. A- absolutely. So, I mean, you are you're you're right on the money to to bring in um, the private sector into this because privatization could be lumped in to um, to could be lumped into this spectrum. That's I kind of kept I, it. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Yes, I could. I kept it political because that's kind of my that's what my research focuses on. Is is I'm getting a PhD in political science, right. so it has to focus on that. <laughs> um, uh, but privatization can definitely be be lumped in, and so. Um, what we saw, I, I mentioned um, this third wave of democratization in the 1990s that had this accompanying trend towards decentralized uh, decentralizing power. What we also saw in the 1990s was a ton of privatization, and I like there's this literature called the public administration literature, mm-hmm. and is what it did, and and I think this was kind of uh, brought in by the the Thatcher Reagan era of um, out, like uh, contracting out uh, a lot of public services to the private sector. And it's this new form of public administration called new public management. Um, and it became in vogue in the 90s. Um, I think it's, it's a little less in vogue now, um, uh, but countries like New Zealand, for example, went full bore into this new public management and outsourced a lot of their... Uh, uh, public goods provision and, and um, public services to private sector entities. How did that turn out for them? Just do you happen to know? I mean, they did quite well during COVID. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, I mean, for, as far as I can tell, you know, I've seen you know, Lord of the Rings did well. Uh, <laughs> Arden is doing well. Um, New Zealanders are doing fine. I, I my my research focuses on sub-Saharan Africa, so I don't really know how how New Zealand has has fared relative to what they were doing in the '90s. But by all, all accounts, I can see they're they're doing just fine. <laughs> that's interesting. So that, that's sort of a third possibility between what's been mentioned so far. So you can have decisions that are made politically. You can have decisions that are made purely in the private sector, and then you can have political public decisions that are made by contracting out to the private sector. So you might get some efficiency, but it's not quite what you would get in, in just a raw free market where everything is coordinated by prices and and undergirded by property rights. Yeah, and and this comes to um public private partnerships, right? Because these these um these were also this this hybrid form um that's a mix of public and private and there's a lot of benefits uh well, at least theoretically to public private partnerships. I think there are a few conditions that um 
uh, jurisdiction needs to fulfill before they get the full benefits of PPPs. But um, just to go through some of them, like what I'm thinking of public goods provision and especially infrastructure, because that's the one I've looked into the most. There are a lot of infrastructure PPPs that have happened, um, some of which have been very successful, some of which haven't. But some of the benefits are uh, you have dedicated uh, management that are experienced in, in my case, building roads and building toll roads and infrastructure. They've done this before, so they know how to do it. Um, you have uh, an incentive for this project to actually get started and get off the ground because these private entities want to start charging tolls, right? They, they don't get paid until they charge these tolls, so they yeah. don't want to keep the project in limbo for a whole ton of time or planning for a whole ton of time. Um, it prevents white elephants, white, white elephant projects, right? Because these projects only make money if the demand arises, right? They only make money if people are there to pay the toll. It prevents um, countries from having to set up a whole other bureaucracy dedicated to tracking um, and, and implementing this project over a long scale of time. And um, PPPs, private companies, if you, if you bundle all of the parts of an infrastructure project. So that's everything from designing and, and the pre-planning, the build, the operation, and then the maintenance. If you bundle all of that, the whole life cycle of the project together, then maintenance decisions that affect maintenance costs will be incorporated into design decisions at the beginning. Whereas if you separate those things and segment them and you have a different designer than the person or entity who's gonna maintain it, the designer has no incentive to to think about the the, the maintenance guy, right? That's yeah. that's their problem. The incentives and are so, wrong, and, it, and there's no incentive to integrate all throughout the process. It's the life cycle of right. the project, exactly. So so PPPs tend to, at least in theory, be better at the the maintenance side as, as well. So those are those are some of the benefits in, of this this hybrid form. And I, another article of my um, research has to do with public private partnerships when it comes to infrastructure in uh, in Nigeria. And so I've looked into this a bit and um, what, one of the things that I'm running up against is for PPPs, at least in infrastructure to be effective, it does require a bit of um, governance, a bit of state capacity on, this, on, the, on the part of the state because you need, you need in theory this entity, this public entity to hold uh, and enforce the contract that the, the private sector has signed with the public sector, right? You, someone needs to enforce that the terms of that contract are being adhered to by both parties. And, and typically that's a, a PPP unit, um, which is a public run agency. Uh, and so there does need to be some semblance of uh, state capacity in order to get these things right, especially for, for larger projects. One thing that I wanted to ask you, and we might lose some listeners here, but I uh, I, I like to read economics, and I, I've been going through the Marginal Revolution University courses on basic economics, and like they define a public good there as being non-rivalrous and non-excludable. And I've never yeah. really understood why roads are lumped in with that, because with the mechanism of toll booths, you can exclude people. And I mean, they, they are rivalrous, because if I'm driving and taking up you know multiple lanes of traffic, other people can't use them. So it just seems like they don't infrastructure doesn't fit the basic definition of a public good. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, it's a great point. And I would say two things from there. So there are economists being economists like to complicate sometimes non-complicated <laughs> things. And, and so um, there are, there are public goods, but they, they have this other, you know, like a platonic ideal of a public good that they call a pure public good. Right. And so that's something like, uh, like um, national defense or, clean air, light, or, or something like that. Um, so you're very right that um, roads are not a pure public good in that they are ex excludable and they, they are rivalries, right? That you have congestion. Um, but the other thing I would say too, is that I think they were more of a public good in earlier decades and especially earlier centuries, I guess, when did cars come about in the early 1900s? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because the governments lacked kind of the technological capacity to very efficiently and low costly price these things if they were to offload it to the private sector. Whereas now, if you look at um, 
for example, those that there are a few cities that have um, incorporated congestion pricing. Um, so Singapore, Stockholm, London, and I believe one more that I'm now forgetting. But if well, you New York, it, New York City is on the verge of it. Okay, well, I'll believe that when I see it. But uh, <laughs> for those those three uh, have it, and and Singapore has had it since 1975. So oh, wow. um, I'll use Singapore as the example. They price roads not just um, you know like a flat fee. L London does a flat fee. Singapore does a variable fee that depends on the type of vehicle. So bigger vehicles charge more. The time of day, so rush hour, charged more. Um, the, the, the congestion in the area, right? The, the sensors. So it's called the ERP, the electronic road pricing, the sensors of the ERP sense how congested the particular road that the car is on and factor that into the variable price. And then there was one other factor that I'm now forgetting, but basically, um, Singapore's via technology has figured out how to turn roads into from a public good into a uh into a private good essentially right. they figured out how to price it very effectively and at low cost with this new technology that wasn't available to governments in the early uh 20th century does the state handle all the infrastructure projects in singapore or is that contracted out i would imagine i mean so i know that singapore is odd in that they are very pro-business but i also know that they their public housing is a kind of odd at around the world by public housing enthusiasts because like something like 70 or 80 percent a crazy proportion of their population lives in public housing and so I, it, short answer is uh they are they're pretty private sector oriented but then they have these these certain sectors that are are very dominated by the government and that probably comes from Singapore's just geopolitical position as a tiny city state amidst, you know, uh, one of the key trading straits in uh, Southeast Asia, that huge, you know, gargantuan superpowers like China, and, you know, rising Indonesia and um, Japan all, all care about. So um, the government has to come in in certain strategic sectors, and I guess housing is is one of them. It's really interesting. It's one of the things that motivates my interest in charter cities is just what can be accomplished when you're dealing with a political unit that's fairly small and mm -hmm. it becomes possible to internalize a lot of externalities and engage in the, the dynamic pricing you're discussing and so build better infrastructure projects or incentivize better use of them. So I guess with that somewhat ham-fisted transition, let's get into the actual meat of the episode, which is charter cities. So you said that the Charter Cities Institute has these two main things that it's trying to do, you do consulting, and then you're also trying to lay the intellectual framework. So which one of those would you like to start getting into more? Um, do you mean like for this episode or more like the CCI, the CCI or as an organization, which one do we want to start getting into more? Uh, probably for this episode. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe let's chat about um, best, best give the intellectual framework first, okay. and then that gives everyone kind of something to to frame uh, the information around, and then we'll chat about specific projects sure. if, we, if we get to it. Sounds good. Should I go for it? <laughs> yeah, please dive right in. Yeah, so so I mean, just for definitions at the top, so charter cities, um, they are uh, new cities with new rules. Um, so by rules, we mean policies, we mean laws, we mean institutions. Um, and so why do we why do we care about the rules? Um, institutions, uh, so say a lot of economists and public policy folks are one of the, if not the key determinant of long run economic growth and invariably around the world, a lot of low, low income countries have poor institutions. Uh, uh, just one example is the world bank's doing business index. If you look at, um, sub-Saharan African average. On average, it takes about 37% of per capita income um, uh, for the average country just to register business. And so, you know, if that's the case, you, you, if you have that kind of stifled uh, a business environment, you're not going to get a very dynamic uh, entrepreneurial uh, economy where you know investment is eager to come in and and um, 
invest in projects that it sees sees as fit. And so the question then becomes, if you have low-income countries that have poor governance, how do you how do you turn around this poor governance? How do you engage in institutional change and institutional reform? And um, so just see- just to uh, quantify this, how many charter cities are there in the world right now? Yeah. So the, by our kind of strict definition, we would I would say Shenzhen uh, is a proto charter city. I would say Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, Dubai would be proto charter cities. Um, but in terms of like these 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 cities were not set out this way. Um, I would I talked about platonic ideals before. I would say we have this definition of what a charter city is. And there are varying degrees of it, very much like there are varying degrees of decentralization. Some cities will be granted, you know, a lot of autonomy, just like um, Shenzhen and Hong Kong were, um, and some will be granted less. And so there are varying degrees to which the uh, to which these cities uh, would be considered by us as charter cities. So, but there's no pure. Uh, there's no pure charter cities by our definition. So does um, Saudi Arabia's NEOM project uh, called The Line, does that fit into this? So I know the NEOM project and I know, so there are, there are a bunch of new cities like NEOM um, currently being built or have been built. I think the number last I checked was there around 200 new city projects around the globe. And again, um, some of them have, a lot of devolved autonomy and some of them don't some of them are um account or, or, or their policies are determined by higher tiers of, of government and so uh that would vary the extent to which we consider them a charter city i don't know about neom's government governance system just because i know it is a relatively new i don't think it's been started being built right they're just conceiving of the concept i saw the line drawing i'm not uh, sure how much of a fan i am of the the line <laughs> concept but we'll see how it goes yeah that, um, that that's a project that i was asked to come in and do some consulting on a couple of years ago um so that i'm well, familiar with it i mean so i wouldn't i want to ask you then so like uh what are your thoughts on neom and and its prospects um well they they wanted different rules to apply for parts of the country because the uh, they realize that Sharia law is not a, a very good economic development uh, uh, attractor. And yep. so to, to bring um, multinational corporations to Saudi Arabia, they needed to create some sort of a, uh, a platform that had different rule set uh, behind it. And so the, uh, both the king and his son both built palaces in uh, on the coast in the Neom area, right at the the Red Sea there, and um, and so now they're they're uh, starting the work on the rest of it. So they got five hundred billion dollars for trying to dedicate to this project. Yeah, yeah, and that number kind of terrifies me because either like <laughs> that's a lot of money, right? Uh, <laughs> Um, so I, I worry about a lot of these projects and, and I don't know, for example, if you guys have seen, um, Akon city, uh, that's, that's another like, uh, popular one that the, the music kind of stars going back to Senegal and giving back by founding the city. I saw some of the renderings of, um, the planned project and it, it looked to me like monumentalism a lot. And I, I worry that with $500 billion and a lot more where that came from in Saudi Arabia, that uh, the project will kind of devolve or, or head that way in, in the, in the, in the area of monumentalism over practicality. You mean just building giant garish structures because you've got the money to. Exactly. Yeah. That, that aren't so much dedicated to function as just kind of, you know, monuments to MBS or, or, you know, some other political authority. As long as it fits on the line, no. It has to fit on the line. <laughs> Cannot exactly. stress how important the linear structure of this is. No, I, I had to fly in there on a helicopter, uh, which was quite the experience. That was a couple of years ago, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. I, I mean, I so I'm always hopeful for these projects. I brought up Akon and I brought up the line and, and monumentalism as a potential uh, thing that could get in the way, but like, 
neither of these uh, projects have gotten well underway for us to make any final um, so, judgments so, on them. So yeah. as, as a futurist, I always think about kind of the long-term viability of, of these new structures. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of, you're making up the rules as you go. Yeah. Um, nothing's carved into stone um, for over time. So what do these look like 100 years from now, 200 years from now? And do they stand the test of time? I think that um, if you go down the road of monumentalism, I don't think they will. I think that Senjin right now it started off as, as uh, I think it was 100 or 300,000 people spread out over, I believe it was 120 square kilometers. And it was basically a bunch of, a, a bunch of disparate fishing villages at the beginning in, in 1979. And then uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, engaged in this opening up and uh, set up Shenzhen as one of the four original SEZs and liberalized these four SEZs. So the first land markets were formed, the first labor markets were formed, and they allowed foreign direct investment for the first time to, to enter into the country. And through this liberalization, um, you had this mass influx of folks from rural areas to urban areas. They became more educated. They became more productive. Uh, they engaged in gainful employment, much more so than they were able to in rural areas. And then the Chinese Communist parties, you know, kudos to them. They saw the success and they scaled and replicated it up to other cities uh, across China. Um, and now Shenzhen uh, today is a city of uh, the metropolitan area is around 20 million. It's a huge metropolis and it's uh, one of, it's called the Silicon Valley of hardware, I think. So it's one of the top manufacturing um, cities when it comes to hardware in the entire world. And so to me, like if you've found a, a niche economically and you're able to adapt like Shenzhen is, because of the devolved authority they've gotten from the central level, that's the recipe for longevity, um, not you know some statue of MBS that's made of stone or or some uh, <laughs> sphinx, you know. It'll uh, be made of gold, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Half a trillion dollars, you can you can spring for the gold statue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's that's my that's my you need you need a, a local adaptation. And, um, and an economic niche uh, in order for longevity to be in the cards. So I think we started that tangent when you were talking about institutions and the, the role that they play in charter cities. Yes. Um, so, so institutions good. Uh, a lot of low-income countries' institutions are bad. How do you, how do you change that status quo? And, and this problem was kind of chatted about by an economist named um, Manker Olson, mm -hmm. who wrote about the logic of collective action. Right. And right, when do you get a collective action problem? It's when there are uh, concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. So uh, what does that mean? I'll, I'll kind of explain. The, the common example is sugar tariffs in, in the U.S., um, I'm Canadian, so forgive me. I think it's Florida that uh, has the has the bunch of sugar farmers, um, and these sugar farmers uh, gain a ton from this sugar tariff being uh, implemented. Right? I think, like you know, let's say each gets uh, a million bucks a year from this sugar tariff. Uh, so they're super energized and uh, incentivized to organize for this sugar tariff to stay in place, despite it being on the whole net bad for society right. flip the coin to the consumer side you know you and me we go to the store uh we maybe buy sugar like once every six months or once a year and because of this tariff it's like 15 cents or 20 cents extra you know we're not getting all jazzed up and 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 gonna lobby our government to change this oppressive uh 15 cent tariff right um it's the concentrated benefits to the farmers that get them jazzed up to organize to keep the tariff in place, whereas we're content with just kind of suffering the loss of the 15 cents, despite, again, it being net, net negative. I say this because you, you can make an analogous 
argument when it comes to institutional change. Because you have political elites in a lot of these countries who benefit from the current institutions, despite them being suboptimal, right? Despite them being uh, crappy institutions that are net bad for the country as a whole, they're going to fight to keep that in place so that their rents are, are, are continued. Um, they continue to stream towards them. And uh, the conversely, the, the, the citizens on the whole, maybe they're disrupted, you know, uh, once a month or something like that for a petty bribe they're not going to get all uh, hyped up and, and organized most most of the time. And so that's the problem that you have with institutional change. And so what are the solutions? Uh, we see it at the, at the Charter Cities Institute as localizing the problem, right? National level institutional reforms, you bump up against all of these elites, uh, these special interests that stymie reform. So you localize the problem and you undercut all of those um, or, or at least get rid of all those special interests that you bump up against. And then another way to do that too, in addition to localizing, is you set up uh, these new jurisdictions, these new cities on greenfield land, so sparsely populated land. And because there are very few uh, people there, there's very few kind of special interests, elite interests that you're, uh, you're bumping up against and jeopardizing. And so you're able to get a lot deeper institutional reforms than otherwise possible. And so that's what that's what we see charter cities as a mechanism to do. I think it might be worth exploring this this relationship between institutions and long-term um, prosperity. And, and then I promise after that we'll, we'll get to specific charter city stuff. But, but like, why is it that institutions are so important to a country's well-being? Yeah, so, so it's important to... Uh, Institutions like Douglas North was the big institutional economist and institutions are both formal, so codified laws and informal practices, customs, beliefs. And they're so important because they structure both formal and informal institutions structure all of our social and private uh, interactions in everyday life. And by structuring all of those interactions, whether it's a formal rule like a law or an informal, you know, taboo or something like don't spit in public, um, it's those structuring of our everyday interactions that provide us as individuals with incentives to either engage in good behavior or uh, allow and permit bad behavior. And so that's why they're so important, because when you then um, aggregate up from the individual level to the societal level, and you have a rule set, an institutional set that nudges each individual on the margin towards uh, good behavior and less permits bad behavior, then you're going to get better outcomes. And so that's, I guess, simplifying it a lot. That's why um, institutions, to me and to a lot of other economists, are uh, the single greatest determinant of long-run economic growth. Yeah, so would uh, would your organization benefit or not benefit from an episode on Black Mirror about charter cities? <laughs> <laughs> so it would depend on the direction they took it, I think. Yeah, and just judging from, judging from the few episodes I've seen. So I watched that in the middle of COVID, and I was like, I can't watch this anymore. This is too depressing. <laughs> um, this is not, this is like bumming me out, seriously. Um, so I would I, I would assume that Black Mirror would take Charter Cities to some horrible dystopian end. So I would, you know, while we would relish the name recognition, we might have some reputational uh, damage to the idea. Yeah. So, so how do, uh, how does citizenship change? Uh, or does it at all, uh, uh, crossing the borders from into a charter city? Yeah. So this would this would all. I mean, we're we're pretty agnostic as to um, right. There can be public run uh, charter cities. There can be public private charter cities. There can be private charter cities. And we're pretty agnostic as to the form that ultimately comes about. We just really advocate for uh, devolved as much devolved authority as, as the city can get. We do push for a public-private partnership model, a PPP model. And, and when we talk about 
Romer's model versus ours, I'll get into it more. Uh, but to answer your question, there will be a negotiation phase uh, about what the city charter actually entails, number one. And there will be a negotiation phase for enacting at the national level of that host country uh, legislation that sets up the legal framework for these charter cities. And typically in both of them, those, those documents, those legal documents will delineate whether that charter city has been um, given the authority over something like immigration um, and, and visas and things like that. Uh, what, what, what we write in, in the handbook um, is that because we want free flowing both goods and people, uh, free, free movement of both between the charter city and the host country, it's going to be most likely, again, we're pretty agnostic about how this ends up, but we think it's going to be most likely that uh, immigration will end up being a, a branch of the National Immigration Service that's uh, deconcentrated to the charter city and set up there. And we advocate that then the city manager of the charter city appoints the head of the charter city's branch of the national immigration service that's there. Um, that's what we recommend in the handbook based of our reading of the literature and chatting with uh, new city projects on the ground. Uh, but again, there will be, uh, there will be various um, forms of this that crop up as, as more and more cities get started. So how do you feel about the current landscape of charter cities? Uh, I was recently reading the uh, prospectus on Prospera on Astral Codex 10, and, and he goes into a bunch of detail about the way the city's laid out and, and how the laws are going to work. And there's a lot of really fascinating stuff there. So uh, among the projects that are currently out there, are there any that really stand out as being especially promising that you're especially excited to see unfold? Um, yeah. So there are, I would say, two that we're affiliated with. And and so on Prospera, I, you might ask about this, but I'll just bring it up now because you mentioned it. So one of the chief critiques of charter cities, and I, I mean, I think it's a fair critique. You know, I'm a researcher. When I read something that's fair, you know, I'll, get, I'll give you, uh, uh, it's fair. And one of them is that, um, and this is Sarah Moser is a geographer from um, McGill University. Um, she works uh, a lot on new city developments around the globe. Like I said, there's some 200 odd new city developments. Uh, and she writes about in a lot of her work, how a lot of these new cities become kind of enclaves for um, the rich and, and um, are sort of bastions of, of, of inequality. And, you know, this is fair because like, that's what a lot of, of, of these projects, you know, are. And I see, uh, I, I place no value judgment on that, by the way, but um, CCI is dedicated. Our mission is to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty. And so we're focused on a, a sort of different model of charter cities that uh, really focus on low income segments. And so I think Prosper has taken a, a, the, a, another route. They're focused on, it sounds like uh, remote work and um, getting, I guess, more high income folks, digital nomads to, to come in and, and they have this beautiful tropical island on Roatan in, in Honduras. Um, they have a, a low, low tax rates and all that stuff and, and they can come there and, and have a glorious time in the, in the tropics. And so that that's kind of this this higher income model. Again, it's fine. They're experimenting with different rules. That uh, that experimentation is good. People learn from that experimentation. You can see sort of what works and what doesn't. As you said, they have some like really interesting stuff on the books that Scott Alexander wrote about. Um, it's just not you know given our mission and and the fact we're a nonprofit. It's not the model that that we are um, super interested in. We want we want kind of the low income segment to be to be the, the front and center. Well, let's talk a little bit about that then. What, what's the model that you specifically advocate for and, and how is it that you think that will lift all these people out of poverty? Yeah, so um, and so our model is, like I said, the, a public-private partnership model. 
and this differentiated uh, differentiates it from uh, Paul Romer's model. Uh, you guys probably he had this famous TED talk right. back in 2009, where he first I don't want to say introduced because it's it, Charter Cities as a concept actually has a very long history, but he I guess reintroduced it to the world, and um, the way he conceived of it was. Uh, charter cities would be um, established in these host countries, and then these host countries would would get this foreign guarantor country uh, to come in and rule these jurisdictions. So it'd be like, for example, Honduras, um, Canada would come into Honduras and you know rule uh, a particular delimited geographic area within like Honduras with franchise. Exactly, with Honduras. Canadian laws and and Canadian rules and stuff, and it'd be it'd be great. Obviously, I think for some some pretty apparent reasons that smacked some folks of um, you know uh, white savior <laughs> syndrome is these, <laughs> these these guys in like um, Western capitals coming in and saving the day and and smacked others of neo-colonialism like you know we've done this before. Um, I don't want to go into that too much, but but uh, basically it became politically unfeasible, and I would say even undesirable from a legitimacy um, point of view. And um, Paul Romer tried this model in, in Honduras. Um, it, it didn't really, he left, he left the project. Um, this was, I believe in 2012 or 2013, there was a constitutional crisis. And then uh, they had, to, the, the law got struck down by the constitutional court. Um, they had to rejig the law. Uh, they passed this new Zeti legislation um, and then it took another seven, seven years, seven, eight years for um, Zetis to actually form. So Prospera is, I think, the first one. And then we have an affiliated project called Ciudad Morizan. Um, that's another one. Um, and then the other project he worked on was in Madagascar. And uh, again, that that didn't take off the, the president. Uh, I, I want to say he got ousted in a coup. I think that's what happened. But basically the, the incumbent got booted out and he no longer had political support. And so this is all to say that he got the conversation started again. So, so kudos to Romer for that. But I, I think the model that he proposed was, was uh, slightly off. So we propose in, in, instead a, a public-private partnership model. So that's um, kind of the host country being the public entity uh, partnering with a ideally local urban developer, real estate developer uh, the, from the private sector. And the mechanism that aligns incentives is that the urban developer, by kind of having control over uh, this particular jurisdiction, they are incentivized to uh, maximize land values, right? And so what increases land values it's when there's more economic activity, it's when more residents move to the zone, it's when more businesses are started up in the zone. And so, you know, if their incentive is to maximize land values, then that's that's what what should be the incentive of all governments, right? That that spurring economic activity um, should be the be all end all of these governments. And so we think that that aligns incentives better. And uh, I think I, I think I explained that well enough. It's it's a uh, it's it's um, the private developers' incentives are aligned because they are incented to maximize land values, and by doing so, they maximize their profits, and uh, at the same time, as as uh, as increase economic activity in in the uh, jurisdiction. And so, we think that's a more um, desirable, uh, feasible, and and uh, tenable alternative to to Romer's model. So one of the <clears throat> one of the big shifts globally is that um, most of the countries in the world have stopped having kids, and um, and there's only six countries in the world that uh, have over half of all the babies born in the world right now, and it, it's occurred to me that uh, this being the case, that very likely we're going to see a much larger issue with refugees. Uh, coming out of poor countries, moving around the world. Um, is, is there a, a way that uh, charter cities can work with some of the refugee issues that are going on right now and solve some of the problems? I would say absolutely. Um, 
In fact, this is good timing for this question. We have Alexander Betts, uh, who is a professor at Oxford. Uh, he just came out with a book called The Wealth of Refugees, and he wrote a book with Paul Collier, who's an economist, called Refuge. I think that was in 2013 or 2014. Um, coming on our podcast, this is in, in two days, so I have some reading to do. Um, but we also recently put out uh, our own paper on this, uh, how charter cities can help with refugee responses. And the main route for uh, charter cities to, to help in this area, I think, is the, the statistic says that 78% of refugees are in a form of uh, protracted displacement. That means they've been displaced from their homes for at least five years, typically over five years. And yet the UNHCR, which is the High Commission for Refugees, um, guys responsible for all these uh, responses, they are still acting like these are short-term issues. That's why we still see refugee camps. Um, and this is despite these folks being displaced for longer than five years. And so if we have almost 80% of uh, refugees in this kind of protracted situation, there needs to be some uh, thought towards uh, long-term urban management, right? These are large agglomerations of people. Uh, when they become refugees, a lot of countries refuse to grant them the right to work, and yet they're, they're then forced to be in this situation for five plus years. It seems like an absurd Kafka-esque kind of uh, catch-22 that these refugees are in, right? And so we see the solution as, again, um, letting this zone, this particular delimited jurisdiction that is, uh, you know, if it's an existing thing, it's, it's a refugee camp. Uh, if it's a new one, hopefully you can um, contract with an urban management um, company to come in and plan uh, at least somewhat in advance of mass settlement. Uh, that way costs are lowered and uh, you provide this jurisdiction uh, with the right to work for the refugees in the the uh, in that jurisdiction and to integrate with uh, the host country and so we lay out we lay out um, some other ways that charter cities can help out in in this realm but i think that's really the key one is switching refugee responses from a very the, the current status quo, which is very emergency, short-term oriented that UNHCR is currently engaged in, to realizing the facts on the ground dictate that this is a longer-term problem and we need to be planning accordingly. So, so would it mostly be setting up a charter city that has different laws to account for the people that are there? Do you like sort of wrap them in a charter city, like a refugee the, camp? That, but, but so two, two things. Two important things. Uh, one is UNHCR um, to this day maintains most of the uh, authority over the provision of you know waste management, um, constructing and you know um, keeping the roads clear, um, in, in, importing or implementing sewage, uh, water, and all this stuff. They are not meant to do that. Right. <laughs> they are a UN agency meant to and established to advocate on behalf of migrants and refugees. They are not an urban management company. And yet they are carrying out and continue to carry out these functions that they weren't made to do. So these things could be done a lot uh, more efficiently. That's, that's number one. Um, number two is most refugees are denied the right to work. And so they're forced into these because they need to make a living. They need to eat themselves and provide food for their kids. So they're forced into these situations of precarity where they are in informal work. Sometimes it's unspeakable types of work. And so we need to start to recognize their right to formal employment and allow uh, integration with businesses and enterprises from the host country to come in and provide goods and services, sell their own wares, and therefore themselves gain by uh, integrating economically with these 
with these populations. And so, yeah, formal work and um, I guess getting the UNHCR to, to give up the urban management game. <laughs> to, to stop doing a job they were never intended to do and aren't, aren't handling all that well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, do they seem receptive to uh, the ideas that you have or the, the work that you've done? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one word um, answer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, in, for this paper, it was written by a great graduate student at the London School of Economics in, in um, migration and public policy. Uh, her name's Sarah Doyle. She spoke to uh, a bunch of practitioners including, I think she spoke to some folks at UNHCR who wanted to remain anonymous for the paper for, I think, um, obvious reasons. But one of the people uh, she interviewed for the paper was a guy named Killian Kleinschmidt. And he was basically declared, uh, quote unquote, the mayor of uh, Zatari, which was one of the biggest refugee camps in, in Syria. And so this, the, this urban management Point, the fact that it makes absolutely zero sense for an entity like UNHCR to be involved in this stuff, that came from his own frustrations. And uh, from the way Sarah relayed that conversation to me, um, it got quite animated. Wow. <laughs> and because the guy the guy experienced this stuff uh, and the frustrations that come with prolonged incompetence uh, firsthand, right? And And you know, he, I think he's German that, you know, he goes home at the end of the day, but he then had to watch as, as other people in desperate, vulnerable circumstances had to be the ones who dealt with the consequences of this very fixable problem. And so I think that, um, that radicalized him a bit. And, um, so he's, he's advocating for a very, very similar idea called special development zones for all intents and purposes, we could see our paper as advocating for an analogous um, uh, concept when it comes to refugees. And uh, Killian, Killian is a great guy, so I highly recommend that. Um, so most you guys most of the refugee stuff. camps in the world are in Turkey, aren't they? Or uh, a large percentage of them? I am not sure about most in the world, but I know Turkey is definitely a, a hotspot, uh, a haven, just because it's right. It's the uh, kind of border between Europe and um, the Middle East and, and uh, West right. Asia. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And their their government really doesn't want to deal with the refugees. So they're they're there because they have nowhere else to go. And then the, the U.N. is providing money for them. Is that correct? Uh, or some sort of sense in supplies or support or something. I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't know as much about the Turkish um, context. I do know that you know they're far from the only kind of uh, culprits in 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 this realm. I know that, uh, for example, we're writing a paper on um, the issues in in Libya. And I know that there's this mig migrant route from Niger and northern Nigeria uh, up through the Sahara to, um, to Libya. I know that a lot of those migrants uh, don't make it or turn back or get forced into, you know, human trafficking situations. Uh, some of them do make it and then make the precarious journey from uh, the coast of Libya across the Mediterranean Sea. Again, some of them drown. Um, and when they get there, Italy, a lot of the times, uh, puts them back. Right. And so, so um, it's to say that like the, the, the whole of, of Europe is a lot, uh, is a lot of the culprit, but um it's not just kind of one country or another. Um, um, it's it's a it's a tough issue, and this is why I think like again localizing the problem um, below the national level will allow us to experiment with some more uh, better and and feasible policy alternatives. Yeah, I, I I see all these young people growing up mostly in Africa where they're still having lots of kids, and um, they they all seem to have access to smartphones over there. 
and uh, and they're looking yeah. looking at their smartphones and they're saying, "Wow, there's some really fascinating stuff going on around the world, but it's not happening here. I think I'll just go there." And they have very little risk to to, to just pick up and leave and travel around the world. Um, and it's not uh, a movement of a group of people. It might be just a couple of buddies that are just take off and on a lark and decide to travel around the world and end up somewhere. Uh, I see this happening with far greater frequency moving forward. Um, so I, the, this, this problem is not going to go away. <laughs> I think, yeah, it, I think it gets progressively worse over time. Yeah. And, and so I would, cause like the stuff the the literature I've read on, on the immigration, uh, especially the, the, the Libyan route that I talked about, there are a ton of risks. And I know, for example, the German government is funding um, studies right now to figure out how do we kind of like humanely stem this tide uh, from coming to Europe. I don't want, we're Germans, right? We don't want to engage in what the Italians are doing. It's like hideous, but like, we still don't want <laughs> migrants. Right. So how do we like, how do we stop this from happening? Um, and one of the things they've realized in this study, right? You mentioned the, the smartphones. This is why I'm bringing this up. It's it's um, survivor bias, right? Because you're only hearing uh, great things from the people that arrive in uh, Germany or Italy and are taking pictures of the Colosseum or uh, the Berlin Wall and sending it on WhatsApp to their friends back home. Right. And they the german government is trying to hit their head against a, a wall to figure out how to get um migrants who have made it over and gone through a horrible experience which a lot of them go through how to get those people to communicate back home that guys it's not all coliseums and berlin walls uh, and tourism it's like a horribly risky journey uh, i've just gone through it please don't go but those guys, uh, the, the negative stories uh, get get sent via WhatsApp a lot less than the positive right. stories. And so there's this survivorship bias that 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 makes it um, distorts the 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 risks that these folks are taking on when they decide to leave. And, and the German government is trying to figure out how to how to convey accurate risks such that fewer people decide right. to go in the first right. place. All right, yeah. so we are we are coming up on the hour here, and I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about the governance handbook that the CCI has just put out. So the, it's 250 pages, and you graciously <laughs> sent it to me two hours ago to read in advance of the episode. So I'm going to repay the favor and give you five or so minutes to summarize the entire thing. Go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is my bad, and uh, thank you. Thank you for bringing it up alive. Um, no, so... so the, the, again, my research team, one of our main roles is to set the, the sort of intellectual foundations for charter cities. The other role is, is to um, provide consulting technical assistance to new projects on the ground. This project very much marries uh, both of those, those arms of, of research because it's very practically oriented. We, we wrote it for uh, specifically for new city builders uh, new new city developers in mind, and um, and so we hope that it both uh, sets forward a vision of, of what this legal framework for new cities could be, as well as um, is a practical step by step guide to to create a legal system from scratch. And so, what, I guess first, what would help maybe is is just um, explaining the motivation, the why behind the project, and so. Right, we have uh, these 200 or so new cities um, being developed around the world. We have um, urban planning firms that are hired to make the, the master plans for these cities. We have um, architecture firms hired to design them, engineering confer uh, firms uh, to construct them. What we don't have is uh, kind of these firms dedicated to setting up and directing the new legal system for these new cities. And so that's exactly what the handbook, the gap that the handbook was meant to uh, sort of fill. And um, 
it's 16 chapters, as you alluded to, it is 250 <laughs> pages. Um, we, we chatted with, I think, around 50 uh, practitioners and academics uh, in uh, special, specialists in each of these 16 um, regulatory domains um, to both, I mean, talk to academics to get at the research frontier uh, of what's kind of impractical, but like they think, you know, should be implemented and then talk to practitioners to see what's possible within that kind of rosy picture that the academic just uh, uh, painted. So mm. we tried to arrive at very actionable, um, feasible policy recommendations. And I think we did a good job. And so, so, what are these... so if somebody wants a copy of this, where how would they get a hold of it? So it's going to be published here. It'll probably be published by the time this podcast comes out. I don't know how, what your guys' turnaround time is, but um, it'll be published here. It's May 18th within the next week or so, okay. I would imagine. Um, so by, by I'd say by June 1st at the, at the very latest. So that would be available on our website. There's a reference guide section of our website, and we'll put it out on all of our um, social media channels and all that fun stuff too. Um, yeah, so it's available via that. Um, yeah, that's it. And, and, and I can, I guess maybe I'll butt off. I, there's, there's a very little time, but I'll, I'll butt off some of the main critiques to this. Cause I know our main audience is, is new city builders. A secondary audience is the international development community. And one of the main um, critiques we got when we did our due diligence and, and did the kind of 50 odd interviews is, um, you know, things are very context specific. You can't really make a, a handbook like this. Uh, the projects are are too different. And um, while I totally uh, concede context specificity, every uh, locality is is different, and, and that's totally true. I do not concede that um, that should render you, you know. Um, that there are no it, principles it, at all, right? I mean, exactly. Then it would that, be impossible to do anything. Exactly. That should not render you inactive. There, there, like, there are lessons from the past that right. we can learn, right. and these lessons can be brought together in a in a sort of collated, centralized document and communicated in a, in a simple way. And so that's what this handbook tries to do. Um, it's it's. Uh, I think it's the first kind of comprehensive attempt at this, and um, I hope that new city builders find it uh, find it useful. If you have further questions, uh, new city builders, international development folks can reach out to me, um, Curtis at cci.city, and, and we can have a have a chat about it. Well, there you have it. Um, yeah. How to start your own charter city and yeah. five easy steps. Yeah. <laughs> 16, 16 easy steps. 16 <laughs> chapters, 250 pages. Right. Yes. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, this, is, this has been great, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is great. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>